0: Hi everyone, Um, I'm Chanel, I'm a third year music student and we have come to our Bible reading. So if you are in need of a Bible, put your hand up in the air and one of our welcomers will come and hand you one. Um, The passage we'll be reading today is Jeremiah 39 verse 1 to 14 and it actually has a page number this time around. So page 555 if you've got a CE Bible. Also, Umbrella of Grace today, Um, there are a lot of really weird sounding names, Um, I'm not even sure of the pronunciation on some of them, so yeah, just bear with me. Awesome, we'll get started. So that's chapter 39. This is how Jerusalem was taken. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army and laid siege to it. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of Zedekiah's eleventh year the city wall was broken through. Then all of the officials of the king of Babylon came and took seats in the middle gate Negal Sharazar and Samgar, Nebu Sazakim, a chief officer, Nergal Sharazar a high official, and all of all the other officials of the king of Babylon. When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled they left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls and headed toward the Arabah. But the Babylonian army pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. They captured him and took him to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he pronounced sentence on him. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon, slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put... Out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, carried into into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city, along with those who had gone over to him and the rest of the people. But Nebuzaradan, the king, the commander of the guard, left behind. In the land of Judah, some of the poor people who owned nothing, and at the time he would gave them vineyards and fields. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given these orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard. Take him and look after him. Don't harm him, but do for him whatever he asks. So Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, Nebuchadnezzar how do you say that? A chief officer. Nergal, Sharazar, and high official of all the other officers of the king of Babylon sent and had Jeremiah taken out to the, to the courtyard of the guard. They turned him over to Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him back to his pe- home. So he remained among his own people.
1: Well done. There was a reason we chose that passage. I wasn't being mean. It was actually because it was on page 555, um, which I thought was beautiful, and so that's the reason we chose it. It's not entirely true. As we jump into the talk um, a little bit later on, you'll understand why we're looking at it. Uh, You would have noticed that this is actually finally the time where God's judgment falls. Uh, All this time we've been talking about it, uh, 38 chapters of it, it's until chapter 39 we actually see it happen Uh, which means it's going to have some interesting things to say to us today. Uh, But I thought it'd be worthwhile, just before I even start the talk, um, to just pray for the new committee. We didn't do that just before, and I thought that'd be a lovely thing uh, to pray for them as a community who will be led by them in the next year. So why don't you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for answering our prayers. Uh, that you provided people uh, to nominate for committee and that you've given uh, the CU, um, I suppose, the wisdom and the means of voting to select these six people to lead us into next year. We pray for all of them, that you protect them, uh, that you help them to be lovers of Jesus and lovers of your word, that you'll keep Satan and his influence far from them, that they'll be seeking after godliness and the glory, not of themselves, but of the Lord Jesus as they lead in service uh, like he did. We pray that you give them wisdom as they make decisions uh, and that you enable all of us through their leadership to continue to proclaim Jesus on campus, that more and more people may come to know him and be presented mature in him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excellent. Well, you've got an outline and we'll be slowly working through that. Um, One spoiler alert is that point three right at the end has a large gap there. You won't be needing all of that, so feel free to flow on in if you're a rabid note taker. Um, But I want to begin with an observation that you may not have realised. You might not know this, but just about everything that you believe to be true is because somebody else told you that it was true. If I asked you what was the fastest thing in the known universe, you would say did some light. light thank you one person knows it right <laughs> and, and and my question to that one person you really ruined the talk just just right there my question to the one person who just did that how do you know that light is the fastest thing in the known universe did, a bunch of scientists did a bunch of experiments and they told me that That's right did you do the experiment do you even know how to do the experiment Maybe. No, okay, maybe because... Yeah, and, and do you know why? That's a sec- okay, this is why you never play with children or university students. They ruin absolutely everything. Josh spends too much time on Wikipedia and that's why he knows. Um, what great. about gravity? How many of you guys have ever, like, personally verified the existence of gravity? Did you work that one out yourself? What about World War II? Okay, come at me now, this one's going to work. Were you there? Were you there at the Rhine? Did you see it happen? No. (laughs) You don't have to feel so sad about that, brother. (laughs) So much of what we know about our world and what it's like, our life and what it's for, is because others have told us and we've trusted what they've said. Now, the dilemma that we face in today's age is that we have a lot of people speaking and it's hard to know who to listen to. Uh, sometimes it's fairly obvious. My guess is that you probably want to pay attention to the guy who says there's this thing called electricity just before you shove a knife in the toaster. Uh, my, my guess is somebody like Andrew Tate, you probably just want to kind of ignore him and everything that he, he possibly says. But, but when it comes to issues about the meaning and purpose of life, things start to get a bit more complicated. Who do you trust? Uh, in our age of the internet, we now live in a world where we are daily confronted with thousands of voices and opinions. Uh, I don't know whether any of these are people that you know, but there's some people that I know. Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Cristiano Ronaldo, Selena Gomez, Kylie Jenner, and like I mentioned before, Andrew Tate. All of them are calling on us to listen to them, to not forget to like and subscribe, because what they have to say, according to them, matters to you. But the thing that we can miss, I think, as we go through this world of loud and noisy voices, is that there's another voice in the midst of that that enters into our world and speaks to us, and it's God's voice. And he calls to us to listen to him, and he does that through the person of Jesus. So, for example, this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. He tells a story, and he says, As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Now, the flood that Jesus talks about when he's giving that story is God's judgment at the end of history. And when he calls us to hear his word and put them into practice, it is to be motivated by a desire to avoid that judgment. You want to find yourself on a solid foundation, not something that's just going to collapse out from under you. But he doesn't come to us as one opinion among many. Like here's my YouTube channel. You can subscribe to my friends as well, that sort of thing. He comes to us as a definitive voice that we must pay attention to if we are to prosper. You either listen to him or you don't. You either saved, you're either saved and survive, or you don't. And what we see in today's section of Jeremiah is basically a picture lesson of what happens if we refuse to listen. Because a house collapses. And it's not just some random house you built on the beach, it's an entire nation. It's the nation of Judah. And what happens to Judah serves as a warning to us to take one particular voice seriously as we walk through our life, and that's the voice of Jesus. So with that in mind, let's set the scene and work out where we are. We do this every week because Jeremiah is just ridiculously big and confusing. Uh, And the thing to understand about today, chapters 34, 35 to 44, is that it describes the judgment of God as it destroys the nation of Judah. We saw it in summary in chapter 39. Uh, And the thing to understand is that it begins at a key point, a year 605 BC. This is midway through King Jehoiakim's reign. Uh, and it goes all the way through this section to the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, it goes further. So from chapter 40 all the way to chapter 44, we actually follow the survivors of that destruction as they escaped to Egypt and are never heard of again. But we're not going to look at that bit today. Um, but that date, 605 BC, is a key date for us because it marks the halfway point between Jeremiah's ministry. So if you go to Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 3, we've seen this verse a couple of times this semester. Jeremiah turns to the people of Judah and he says, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the year that he says that to the nation of Judah is the year 605 B.C., And it becomes in the book the point of no return in the history of judah because up until then judgment has been threatened but it could have been indefinitely prolonged Uh, but something happens at 605 bc that sets in motion a series of events that makes judgment both inevitable and immediate instead of kind of just sitting there on the horizon it runs right at you and being aware of that turning point in the history of judah helps us understand the book Because even though one of our griefs this semester has been that Jeremiah is not chronologically ordered, once we lock that key date in place, a pattern begins to emerge in the book with 605 as its starting point. Now, if you remember, Jeremiah has um, three, uh, four movements, sorry. And in the first movement, chapters 1 to 24, we see the announcement of judgment on the nation. Uh, It's basically the first half of Jeremiah's ministry. And then in the second half of Jeremiah's ministry, we have three more movements. Uh, But those movements don't follow chronologically one after the other. They sort of run in parallel. So they kind of run along and, and all of them are designed to kind of work over the same events, like different layers of a painting, all seeking to describe the judgment of God as it's confirmed and executed. And every single one of them starts in the year 605 B.C., And so Jeremiah is is, is sort of like kind of watching a car drive off a cliff. We see the car driving towards the edge of the cliff, 605 BC, and that's the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, from chapter 25, we see it drive over the edge, but we see it from three different angles. And so uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at movement two, where the word of God is challenged by the prophets and ultimately vindicated in the prophet of God. So it's from the perspective of the prophet. Now, the third movement, the third movement's from the perspective of Judah. Again, we see the word confronted. This time I want to use the word rejected. uh, But as it's rejected, it's ultimately vindicated and prevails over those who reject it. Judah is destroyed. And then finally, in the fourth movement, uh, we see it from the perspective of the nations. And this will be next week. We see God's judgment spread out from Judah across the known world, destroying everything in its path. And today we're focusing on the third movement, where we see the word of God rejected, but ultimately fulfilled, ultimately prevailing, and the nation of Judah destroyed. Now, the key theme of this movement is the theme of listening. And we know that because of how the movement begins in chapter 35. And it's a, it's a strange chapter because it's all about a drinking party. Don't know whether you knew that was in the Bible, but but there you go. And and what happens is at the beginning of chapter 35 is the word of God comes to Jeremiah and he tells him to bring a group of people called the Rechabites to the temple and indulge in a bit of wine tasting. Well, who are the Rechabites? Well, if you skim your eyes kind of verse 6 to verse 11, you'll see some things about them. We work out that they're not Israelites, but they're living in Israel. And at some point down the line, their founding father swore them to be lifelong nomads. They can't build houses. They can't cultivate fields and vineyards. The only reason they're in Jerusalem at the moment is because the siege from Babylon means they can't kind of roam the prairies. But but importantly, the other thing they weren't allowed to do was drink wine, presumably because it was connected to the owning of the vineyards. Now, these are the ones, I suppose, that are always kind of asking for the non-alcoholic drink option at, at the party. And despite the spread that Jeremiah kind of puts on, he kind of fills the room, filled with all these delicious wines, they refuse to drink Now, I want to say that's a gutsy move, right? Because whenever a prophet of God asks you to do something, you better think twice about whether you say no. But they stay true to what their um, forefather has asked them to do. And it turns out that rather than getting in trouble, the whole thing has been a setup by God because he wants to use their response as an example to his people, Judah. So have a look uh, at verse 13 with me. Halfway through verse 13. God says, Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words? declares the Lord. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day they do not drink wine because they obey their forefathers' command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. And he summarizes the state of affairs in chapter 35, verse 17. He says, Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the King of Israel, says listen i'm going to bring on judah and on everyone living in jerusalem every disaster i pronounced against them i spoke to them but they did not listen i called to them but they did not answer and so as we read this section this movement of jeremiah what we're meant to read with is a single question in our mind and it's the question of who is listening And when we get to chapters 36 to 39, which is going to be our focus for the rest of today, we see three people, three possible candidates for listeners, people who are confronted by the word of God. And their responses to the word give us three ways of responding to God when he speaks to us as well. And so let's work through each one of them in turn. The first one of the three responses to the word uh, is Jehoiakim. He's the king in the middle of the kings on our timeline there. And he rejects the word of God. Come with me to chapter 36. Uh, We'll have a look uh, in 36 verse 2. God tells Jeremiah to go and take a scroll and write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah and all the other nations. And he's to do that because verse 3, perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will turn from their wicked ways and I will forgive them. So there's still hope at this point. But have a look at the date. This is in verse 1. It's the fourth year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That's 605 BC. This is the year where the car drives off the edge of the cliff. So what is it that happens? Well, Jeremiah does what the Lord tells him to do. He gets his secretary, Baruch to write down everything that he says. And then he sends Baruch to the temple to read it out in the presence of the people. And as he reads it out, there's some officials there from the king and it scares the willies out of them. And so they take that scroll and they take it to the king and look at what happens in verse 21 of chapter 36. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll and Jehudi brought it from the room of Elishamah, the secretary, and read it to the king and all the officials standing besides him. Okay, this is good. The king's getting the word of God. Uh, We're told verse 22 is the ninth month. And the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. So it's wintertime. Now, whenever Jehudi had read three or four columns of the scroll, because that's how they wrote in those days, several columns on the scroll, the king would cut them off with a scribe's knife and throw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these things showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes And it's here that we see the first response to the Word of God. The Word of God is read, but it's rejected. I don't know how many of you guys um, love the English, but when King Charles was crowned, he was given a Bible. Uh, And this is what was said to him when it was given to him. King Charles, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this book, that keep and do the things contained in it, for these are the words of eternal life. Now, can you imagine, just in that moment, as they present that Bible to him, that he pulls a lighter out of his pocket. (laughs) Come on, I practiced this earlier. It only took me two or three times before. And lit the thing on fire. It's like NYC all over again. It's like God doesn't want us to actually use actual fire in our ministry The see you. Maybe we should learn something there. <laughs> can you imagine all the cameras, billions of people watching from around the world, and he takes the thing that is the most valuable thing that the world can afford, and he sets it on fire. That sends a message, doesn't it? And that's exactly what Jehoiakim does. He's not being a reckless teenager, having a laugh with his mates, kind of making some mistakes because he's young. He's methodical, doesn't do it in one hit. He does it bit by bit. And he emphasises by doing that his utter disregard and contempt for the word being spoken to him. See, I think most people would hesitate, right? I think that's true of even atheists. You just don't burn a Bible, but Jehoiakim, well, he does because he rejects the word of God out of hand. You see, the way that the passage described it back there in chapter uh, 36, verse 24, is that he is unafraid. Rather than ponder the possibility that the words of warning and judgment that Jeremiah speaks might actually be true, might actually be worthy of investigation. He is unmoved and unflinching. And sadly, this is the most common response to the word of God when it's spoken today. Rather than ponder the possibility that the words of warning and judgment that it speaks might be true, might be worthy of investigation, we sit in judgment over the word. We laugh at it. We say, well, that's a bit over the top. That's a disproportionate response. We kind of scoff at the idea of a God who judges. That's so outdated. That's so prehistoric. That's not a God worth worshipping. I want a God who loves me, who affirms me. Therefore, this thing can't be true. But the Bible labels that kind of response as foolish. It actually tells us that the right response to the word of God here as it speaks to us is fear. I don't know whether that surprises you, uh, that our response to the word of God initially and first and foremost should be fear. Because I thought Christianity was, it was about love and forgiveness. Uh, and it is. But don't forget the fact that the word that makes us wise for salvation, those lively oracles of God, do so because they warn us about the coming judgment of God. You see, we have to be fearful before we are freed. And that's why there's that beautiful line in Amazing Grace. You remember how it goes? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." That's the judgment, that's the fear. "'And grace then my fears relieved.'" And do you see the logic? If we simply overlook or dismiss the warning of judgment that precedes the words of the gospel, then we can never receive the joy of salvation that follows when we repent of these things over here. And so let me ask you, is that you? Do you, like Jehoiakim, reject the word, consign it to the fire pit as you hear it? Don't want to pretend that this this is a problem for just people out there just because you're in here at the Christian Union at Campus Bible Talk. When you hear the words of God's warning, do you scoff? Do you minimise the urgency and the gravity of what it is that God says? Do you dismiss it out of hand as something not worth thinking about? Because if so, that's Jehoiakim. He rejects the word. And that's the first response. second response is by the person of Zedekiah. He is the last king of Judah and he neglects the word of God. Zedekiah is not like Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was arrogant. He was overconfident. Zedekiah is a completely different beast. He is weak-willed and cowardly. And we're not going to go through the whole thing, but from chapters 37 to 39, we see Zedekiah seek out Jeremiah, actively look for him to hear the word of God. And he does it three times. And we see him ignore it Three times and we get a summary of his reign at the beginning of chapter 37 in verse 2 uh, where we see chapter 7 37 verse 2 that neither he zedekiah nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the lord had spoken through jeremiah the prophet you see zedekiah neglects the word and he does it because he's a people pleaser He is constantly living in fear of others rather than of God. And we see it as the story plays out in these chapters. So let me kind of give you a brief summary of what we see in chapter 37 and 38. Beginning of chapter 37, Jeremiah is arrested. He's thrown in prison under false charges. It happens during the siege of Jerusalem. So we're kind of like a year out from the whole thing just going bust. And it's at this point that while he's in prison, that Zedekiah comes to visit him. And he says to Zedekiah, look, you know, you imprisoned me, whatever. My conditions are horrible. You need to move me. And so Zedekiah does. But then the next bit at the beginning of chapter 38, Zedekiah's officials come to Zedekiah and they're not happy with the words that Jeremiah's been speaking. So they say to Zedekiah, Jeremiah needs to die. And so Zedekiah goes, okay. And so they, they take him and they put him in an empty cistern, like a big kind of, kind, of, kind of hole in the ground that's supposed to store water, but it's empty, it's just full of mud. And they leave him there to starve to death. But then another official comes straight after called Ebed Melech. He's an Ethiopian. The your translation in IV will say Cushite. And he finds out what they've done. And he goes to Zedekiah and says, You know that putting him there will mean that he'll die, right? We need to get him out. And so Zedekiah goes... Okay, and, and, and so Ebed-Melech goes and he, and he pulls Jeremiah out. And it's at this point that Zedekiah has his longest conversation with Jeremiah. And, and despite just his, his just complete weak wilderness, God gives him an out. Have a look at what he says in chapter 38, verse 17. Chapter 38, verse 17. This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you surrender to the offices of the king of Babylon and your life, uh, your life will be spared and this city will not be burned down, you and your family will live. But look at how he responds down in verse 19. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Jews who've gone over to the Babylonians, for the Babylonians may hand me over to them and they will mistreat me. And it gets worse because then he says to Jeremiah after that, I'm actually so scared of my current officials, the ones that haven't gone to Babylon, the ones that are still with me, that I don't want you to tell them that we've talked. If they ask, just lie about it. And so you've got the word of God and the prophet who speaks it. It's basically bounced around like a ping pong ball. You thought the speed of light was fast. This guy's flipping faster than a Rubik's Cube at a competition. And and, and all because Zedekiah lacks the conviction to respond to it correctly. He has fear But it's the fear of here and now and the people around him and not of God and his word. And so rather than trust God's word and act on it, save himself and his people, he neglects it and considers other voices around him as more important. And He lets them crowd it out. Now, even though this response isn't as common as an outright rejection of the word, I think it's just as deadly. And the difference is that it's deceptive. It actually starts with a regard for God's word Zedekiah seeks it out. He doesn't do anything with it. I I think I want to call this the nominal believer response. This is somebody who respects the word. And kind of when you look at their life, though, you're kind of left scratching your head and going, something doesn't really add up. Do they even believe what they say they believe? It's the sort of person who, when they hear the word, it hits their ears, but it never penetrates to their heart. They agree with it, but they never obey it. And so Christianity just becomes compartmentalised. It's a part of you but it never has any influence on the rest of you. And what I want to say is that this is a particular danger for you if you call yourself a Christian. Now, we know that the word of God is important, don't we? And so like Zedekiah, we keep coming back to hear it, whether it's at church, whether it's at Christian Union, whether it's in, you know, even in your own personal quiet times at home. And you might even find it comforting when you read it, but at the end of the day, you're not listening to it because you're not putting it into practice. You're not letting it flip your life upside down like it's done to so many people throughout history and ages. It might become a thing that quiets your conscience, but it's not something that ever completely changes your life. It's there, but it's neglected. And so ask yourself at the end of a Bible talk, does the word of God that you've pulled out of that basket just go back to the basket? Does the Bible that you have in front of you just go back into your bag Without ever having changed you because that's the second response it's the word neglected now before we move on to the third response to the word I think it's important to see what happens to those who reject the word and neglect the word because they are different responses but functionally what they're doing is the same thing right it takes different forms but fundamentally whether you reject it or neglect it you're refusing to listen to God when he speaks And so throughout this section, it's really fascinating if you have the time to kind of read through in a detailed way. There's this ongoing battle between the word of God and those who refuse to listen to it. The word is constantly under attack. People are constantly trying to get rid of it. So, for example, Jehoiakim, we've already seen, he tries to burn it. And then after that, this is what we didn't see. He tries to find Jeremiah to arrest and kill him. Zedekiah, his officials, they try to silence the word by arresting the one who speaks it and putting Jeremiah in a pit. he'll die. But here's the really cool thing about this section of Jeremiah. Every time someone tries to destroy the word, the word prevails. So let's have a look at what happens. Go back to chapter 36, chapter 36, verse 26, 36, 26. Uh, Jehoiakim, he's just burned the scroll. He sends people out to arrest uh, Jeremiah and Barak. He can't find them. They're hidden. God hides them. And then look at what happens, what they're doing while they're hiding. Um, they rewrite the scroll. This is verse 32. The scroll that Jehoiakim burns just kind of comes back. And it comes back stronger than ever. Because look at the last phrase of chapter 36. And many similar words were added to them. this. thing's a hydra. You cut off a head and two more heads come back, right? You don't mess with the word. What about Zedekiah? Well, if you flip over to chapter 38, we see Jeremiah. He's finally rescued from the pit. And look at what he says to Zedekiah, chapter 38, verse 22, chapter 38, verse 22. And it's the poetry bit, just a bit halfway down the verse. Jeremiah says, they misled you and overcame you, those trusted friends of yours. These are the ones that you feared, Zedekiah, and they stuffed you around. Your feet are sunk in the mud. Your friends have deserted you. So who ends up in the cistern filled with mud by the end of the story? It's not the word of God. It's not the one who speaks it. It's the one who refuses to listen. It's a great reversal. The word under attack, but the word comes out on top. And I think that's the whole point of chapter 39, which we read before. It seems like a mundane report of history with a whole bunch of unpronounceable names. And we just see yet another city in the swathe of history just get destroyed. But what that chapter is saying is that the word prevails no matter what you do to it. No matter how you ignore it, try to suppress it, try to destroy it. It's not going away and it will come true. And so for 38 chapters, we have seen Jeremiah say that when God turns up in judgment, he is burning this place to the ground and everyone ignores it. But it happens. And the cool thing about chapter 39, I hope you notice it, is that Jeremiah survives the siege. And he's actually treated kindly by the king of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, his kind of commander-in-chief. And all of that is there designed to, to tell you one thing that you cannot do away with, the one thing that you cannot ignore, the one thing that you cannot reject, the one thing that you must pay attention to is the word of God when it speaks. This is why I kind of roll my eyes a bit, actually. Whenever I read stuff in, in, in books by atheists or articles on the internet, to the effect that Christianity is a generation away from dying out because it's just it just doesn't pay attention to how the word functions not just here in the bible but in history i mean one of the fascinating stories you know frederick nietzsche right the guy who said god is dead do you know what happened he spent the last 11 years of his life in an insane asylum and it's this generation on who's dead god or nietzsche it's nietzsche the new atheists always saying that we don't need religion anymore reading articles in the last couple of years that the movement of the new atheists is dying They didn't even last two decades, and Christianity's been going for 2,000 years. So history, and in particular what we see here, biblical history, points to the fact that the word, no matter what you do to it, cannot be overcome. It will always prevail, always be fulfilled, always come true. And because of that, it should shape the way that we respond to it. And that brings us to our third response, which is the response of Ebed Melech. This is the one who saves Jeremiah from the muddy system, And he responds to the word by accepting it. And as a result, he is saved from God's judgment. So have a look at the end of chapter 39. Chapter 39, verse 15. This is where we stopped the reading uh, because it gets a bit choppy here. This is a flashback. Uh, The city has fallen, Zedekiah is gone. But the description of God's judgment ends with a glimmer of hope. It says, verse 15, While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty God of Israel says. I'm about to fulfill my words against this city, words concerning disaster, not prosperity. At that time, they will be fulfilled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be given into the hands of those you fear. I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life. Key phrase, because you trust in me. Ebed Melech listened. And instead of disaster, he received life. Because that's the kind of God that we have. He speaks not to gather a following for his YouTube channel. Not trying to kind of suborn the masses to kind of listen to what he has to say. He speaks a word of warning to each and every one of us so that we might listen and be saved. So with that in mind, let's turn back to the words of Jesus. Because how does all this connect? How does this all wrap up? I think ultimately the warning that Jeremiah gives the people in Judah is a warning that he gives to us to take the words of Jesus seriously. We read the beginning of Hebrews that God in former times spoke in many ways, many means through his prophets. But in these last days, he speaks through his son. And so like Jeremiah, Jesus speaks a word of judgment. Don't be surprised at that. The first thing he said in Mark's gospel, if you're reading Mark and cover with a friend, repent and believe in the good news. He tells you that there's an issue of judgments coming. You need to do something about it. And that word that he speaks is like the word that Jeremiah speaks no matter how much you resist it, it will prevail. And so what happens to Judah on a national scale will happen in the future on a global historical scale when Jesus returns to judge. That's the inevitable truth of the word of God. But the kindness of God to us is that he has shown us that process in the history of his own people in the book of Jeremiah so that when we hear him speak through his son Jesus, finally and completely, We can look at the pattern and we can see the warning and we can see the word challenged, but we can see the word prevailed so that we might have confidence and reason not to do what they did, build their house on the sand, reject the word, neglect the word, but instead to build our house and our life on the rock, the saving gospel, the words that Jesus speaks. And it's important that we understand this, I think. This isn't just for people who aren't Christians, but for those of us who already are. This gives us certainty. It gives us confidence. It gives us thankfulness that God, before Jesus even turned up, had laid out the system so that we could see the power of his word, the nature of it, that we might respond when the time came for the salvation of the world. And when that torrent and that flood swept through and took out the world, which it will do at some point in the future, we don't know when we can stand firm and confident knowing that we are on the one thing that's solid and the one thing that cannot be swept away. And so as I finish, let me remind you to like and subscribe. But not to me and not to the Christian Union podcast, but to Jesus, the only one worth listening to.